Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Well, you've met John O'Brien previously on the programme. He's from Kilady in Bellinhasic. In 2006, he retired from the Garda Síochána after 40 years' service and having reached the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent. As he says himself, not bad for a country bumpkin. On that programme, we spoke about his book, A Question of Honour, Politics and Policing. I recall it as an extremely interesting conversation regarding the interaction between politics and policing in Ireland through the years. This evening, John rejoins me to talk about his latest book, The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem. It's an update on A Question of Honour. There are, he says, three main themes in this his third book, Personal Stories, The Troubles' Impact on the Republic and The Legacy. Now, some may question if the Troubles, as they are known as in the North, had any serious impact on life in the Republic. Well, the answer is yes, it did have an impact. And on this evening's programme, we reflect on some of the many events that contributed and still do to this impact. As John writes in his book, the Northern influence still dominates policing in modern times. But before we speak to him on this evening's programme, let's take a brief look back at the beginning of the previous programme, as John recalls his journey from Ballinhasic to Templemore Training College on that first day in 1968. Sad news had arrived there before him. Born in Kilady, John played hurling for Ballinhasic, remembers fondly attending the cinema in Bandon, and working for De Wires, a well-known company whose business premises was across the street from the courthouse in Washington Street in Cork. But John wished to expand his travel and his boundaries, and so applied for and was accepted for the Gardee. On Wednesday, June 26, 1968, his father and a neighbour drove him to the Garda Training College in Templemore. It was a day that will always be etched on his memory due to very mixed emotional reasons. By the way, for the history, 1968 summer was absolutely beautiful, John. It was absolutely beautiful. You know, those long days and the sun beating down. On the home front, it was a bit difficult because my mother had become ill and was quite seriously ill. So all of that was happening on the way into 26th of June, 1968. So on that day, myself and my father and a few neighbours, the Cronin family headed off to drop young O'Brien at Yadashikana on a train all in the air in Templemore. I had been in in Tipperary before at, at Munster Finals and in Limerick and all of that but this was an adventure hadn't travelled very far and we went through the gate in Templemore and the first thing we were told uh, John was are you the O'Briens and we said yes and said listen we've got some bad news for you and Mrs O'Brien has passed away in Cork so for that day that day is forever in Blasland in my mind apart from joining the guards and that's really why the book is dedicated apart from any other good reason to the memory of my good mother Margaret Lombard O'Brien and you know so you can those things with you forever so it was a it was a day to remember for a whole lot of reasons i suppose john it's true to say that at that particular time the careers that stood out during the 1960s were priest teacher bank official and guarder but not necessarily in that order was there a history of law enforcement in your family before that no and i would say there wasn't although we were you see i, I lived in as i said in Ballinhasic and near Caledies. we were very aware of the local guards and the local staff and they came doing the census uh, you know 
know, some of them played hurling with the with the local team. There was a, a direct connection, and, and I always got a little bit of magic when I saw the, the usually cycling John through the countryside, uniform, looking really smart and bright. But there was no history of law enforcement in that sense, other than we were, I guess, fairly law abiding. And uh, apart from the odd bicycle, I, you know, it was it was a good in, uh, relationship, and we would have known the sergeants, you know, sons, and so on. So it was a very comfortable relationship in that regard. I think to put it this way, very simply, we trusted the guards, you know. They, they had a good place in our scheme of things and we were, you know, very happy and comfortable. I wasn't so sure about uh, about many aspects of what it was going to be like, but I didn't realize that I was starting in a journey and like, well, your program where the road takes you, this was a journey that took me over the next um, kind of 40 years and then some more to practically every continent on the globe, uh, you know, wearing the guard, the hat and badge. So it was a very interesting kickoff, but no, there wasn't an immediate interest in it, but certainly a very good vibe about the guards. And what was your training like in Templemore then? Much different, I would imagine, than a young recruit heading there today. A sound knowledge of the law, arms training, and I suppose emphasis as well, very much so, on physical training. Yes, but like you remember when you're kind of 21, is what it was, is you're strong. You're, it's like training a hurling team or a football team, you know, so the, the, the physical activity was actually terrific. I hadn't been in the FCA, many of my colleagues had, so they had the rudimentaries of marching and drill, and drill was a significant part of, of the of the program. It was a mixture, you'd probably say in old-fashioned terms that it was stress training, you know, in other words, you were put to the pin of your collar. But having said that, there was a great camaraderie between the different class members, because for the first time meeting guys from all over the country and it was all guys there was no women in our class uh, so so it was all it was an all male environment in that regard so there was a, it was a, a great uh, buzz interesting thing John you know it shows you the changing times we were there permanently we didn't get home at the weekends it wasn't like it is now we were marched to mass on Sunday in Templemore to meet the canon who was quite a character you know at the end of a long avenue in, in Templemore with the devil's bit looking down on top of us one particular sergeant used to march us to mass and I liked this guy and I tell you why John he marched us down but he didn't agree with this so he would march us down he would wait outside until the cannon had given us our usual Sunday lambasting inside you know the dangers to our, to, our, to our souls and then he would march us back but he was making his own statement that he did not agree with that regime I liked him a lot and I think I inherited a bit of that streak in me right through my career in the guards your first posting was to Santry Station in Dublin. I know in the army that you can suggest where you'd like to go, but the eventual destination is down to your superior officers. Was Santry in your psyche at all at that stage? Santry was and Dublin was because I felt there was a fair degree of certainty, you know, of where you were going. If you didn't kind of opt for Dublin, you could pick any point at the compass. And sometimes B Branch, which was our personnel section, took a kind of a perverse delight sending you to Donegal if you were from Cork and... <laughs> Back down to Cox, so it was a little bit of that. Our, our horror of horrors, John. I could wind up in Kerry. Now I'm joking because <laughs> most Cork guards at that stage went to Kerry, and most Kerry guards went to Cox. So it made a, an interesting turn of, of phrase around that particular time of the year, every year. Yeah. so to the present and to John's latest book The Troubles Come South Murder and Mayhem it's a very extensive book but it's a book you can pick up at any chapter or any page and there's an extensive index at the rear to guide you 
There are, says John, three points of interest in this book. There's one, there's the obvious personal recollections from John O'Brien after 38 years in the Guards. There's two, the, the, the impact of the Northern Troubles is well documented in the North, and we can understand that, and very rightly so. But the impact on the South, on the Garda, Chicana as a force, but on the country at large, has been episodically reported, but never comprehensively in terms of the, 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 the extent of uh, troubles from 68, I guess, to 98 in particular. And then the last bit is the legacy. And that I'm absolutely sure that the legacy of the Northern Troubles, but also the Southern political attitudes, has been formed by what happened in the North and also the the, so the reform of the RUC and the PSNI. Some of that has been imported to the Republic, and that has not been a particularly bright episode, in my view. So that's kind of the, the word picture, John. Right. What, what would you say, John, to somebody in the North when you mention the impact the Troubles in the North have had on the South? And they might say, well... Have you lived through your house being burned? Have you been forced to leave your home? Have you been beaten? Have you been shot at? Have you been bombed? Have you been arrested unfairly? How would you answer all of that? Yeah, and that's a great point. And I have read a book by Colin Breen, which is the life stories of several of RUC officers. It's in a, a trilogy. And it's a terrific book to give an insight from a police officer's point of view in the North. And of course, and mercifully, we haven't lived through that in the Republic. Uh, and I always try hard not to kind of get involved in the hierarchy of victims or victimhood, uh, you know, recognizing that everybody has suffered. But of course, I would say we have lived through the Dublin and Monon bombings, the single biggest atrocity of uh, the troubles, 34 people killed in very uh, suspect circumstances in Dublin and Monon. We have lived through um, the murder of many of my colleagues in the service of the state. We've lived through all of that. We've looked at the H-block effect on the South in terms of the political process. And uh, we have looked at the way that the Northern Troubles totally distorted policing in what there's a very big difference in policing terms between the North and the South as we're in the Republic. We're lucky that it's policing by consent. Basically, most of us are happy to be policed by the guards. Extraordinary though that may seem. In the North, it's a divided society, so it's a different, very different world. But I would take very, very seriously uh, and understand, I hope, sensitively and appropriately the suffering that has been engendered in the North. Uh, I absolutely would never seek to minimize it, but I would absolutely say read the book and see the, the impact that it had on the South in a peaceful, democratic country and the effect it had on all our institutions, not least on the Gaddafi economy. On the 17th of May, 1974, a series of coordinated bombings occurred in Dublin and Monaghan. 33 civilians and an unborn child were killed. Culpability for the bombings was laid on the Ulster Volunteer Force, who it was said hoped it would result in a civil war, a war seemingly they were confident of winning. But did the UVF have the capabilities to carry out such precision bombings, or was there collusion with someone who had? And I have spoken to some of the key actors involved in the current stage, both politically here and a, a Mr. John Boucher, who has been running Operation Canova, which allegedly has been looking at it from the northern perspective. But two things. The, the, the British expert who said that the loyalists didn't have the capacity to do it was the head British explosives expert in the north and ultimately worldwide. So we have it in very good technical terms that they couldn't do it. The other one, John, which is the extraordinary one is that Howard Wilson told Liam Cosgrave on two documented occasions, well minuted in government records, that they, the British, knew who had committed the outrages and they had interned them. Now, 
Every succeeding Irish government had absolutely failed to ever articulate what happened in government circles following that information. Because clearly, classically, and without ambiguity, that was the most important bit of information shared, that there is no record of anything happening. And the last thing I'd say about the Dunder and Monaghan bombings is, is that the loyalists did not have the technical capacity to do it. Three bombs exploding in Dublin within four minutes, it would have been technically impossible. All of the experts say this was an extraordinarily well-coordinated, well-executed, if you pardon the, the expression, considering the loss of life. The loyalists didn't do it. Now, I would be perfectly believed that in particular, the loyalists would certainly have participated in such an exercise. We would have to ask the question, who had the military capacity to launch that operation? Because that's what the Dublin end of that bombing was. It was a military-style operation. talk about the impact the troubles in the north have had down here we tend to forget about the 70s and the 80s and how difficult they were 76 in particular the problems that arose here in the south one that would spring to mind would be the the murder of the british ambassador and his colleague but there were many that's right john 21st of july 1976 um, Ewart biggs was murdered in dublin as he left his residence with a guard escort in a typical Provisional IRA roadside bomb attack. Yeah. And, and that was now also the same year Michael Clark and the Garda was murdered in a provisional IRA booby trap uh, explosion in Port Arlington. They were very, very difficult. In the book, I cover a very significant period and I call it keeping the provost in jail, 1972 to 1988. And one of the reasons I did that, John, was that often in my discourse with some of my northern friends, there is the impression and sometimes it is an honest impression, and sometimes it's more calculated, that nothing happened here, you know, in terms of law and order in relation to particularly the provisional IRA. But there were other actors that caused problems as well. And like, and an enormous amount of efforts went in in the Irish state to containing and dealing with particularly the provisionals, but also with wildcat killers like Dominic uh, McGlinchey and so on. You know, so there's been a lot done, and it's well documented in the chapter in the book, and it covers that period from 1972, and it involves jailbreaks from Mount Joy Prison, helicopter escapes from Mount Joy Prison, uh, explosive escapes from the Special Criminal Court in, in Dublin. It involves the shooting of Brian Stack, the chief prison officer in Port Leash. Um, and it involves 19 escapees from Port Leash uh, Prison. And it involved many attempts of that sort. So this is a very active space. But to my mind, John, that narrative has never been put together in like in a single chapter. We report in episodes. And that brings part one of Programme One to a close. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien from Ballinhasic rejoins me in part two to talk about his new book, The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem. And that's directly after the break. 